Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Many months ago, I had the bright idea, or so it seemed at the time, to start an A to Z of snooker. And uh, we've finally made it halfway. We got to M in the last edition. We're now down to N. I gathered together recently in Clandidno some of the finest brains in snooker, Phil Yates, Neil Folds and Alan McManus. And we make it through a few more letters of the alphabet. I'm hoping that uh, this will be sorted out before Brexit, although who knows. OK, N is for non-ranking events. Now, we talk a lot about ranking tournaments and we rank players by the amount of ranking tournaments they've won, but there have been a hell of a lot of invitation events that are very prestigious. The Masters, obviously, which, which Alan has won, is the, is the leading one. The Irish Masters uh, was a huge event. Um, and it's worth sort of recognising, Phil, a lot of these tournaments have come and gone, but, you know, they all count. You won a trophy. They were great tournaments, and let's not forget Neil, who won uh, the, coming to that, yeah. the first Dubai <laughs> duty-free uh, Masters, and also the Regal Scottish Masters, mm-hmm. which was the traditional sort of season opener for a while, and that was a, a superb event as well. I think any time you get the elite together, whether it's for ranking points or for big money or whatever, it's going to be a good tournament. And they were, but they don't really exist that often now, do they? No. It's just the Masters, and basically that's it. Was there sort of, as a player, was the focus any different? Were you not playing for your ranking? Uh, yeah, I was pleased to win those two, actually. Uh, my main memory of, of that, it was the first ever tournament in Dubai, um, and then the next year we, we weren't allowed to play in it. Barry boycotted it interestingly which is funny now thinking about the way that things have changed in the game he said that none of uh, the matchroom players could play in it because I think um, he felt that the tournament had been taken off him by the by the WSA who he now works with anyway that was what happened there and the, winning them uh, the, the other event uh, next year trying to defend it I come against Angles which is not the draw I've in Dubai? To. no in the, um, in the Scottish uh, oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah but no they're good events the other one I remember which which fell by the way so we talk about snooker in Belgium the Humo Masters was quite a big event for a while you know that was that was a good tournament um, I lost in the final to Mike Hallett in that one but um, it, you know it was a it was a very nice event and people think that maybe you know snooker in Belgium is a new thing actually that was in the well about 1990 and uh, there was a lot of people interested in the game in that part of the world then interesting actually they mentioned uh, that part of the world that um, in Germany uh, I played the the European League back then it was kind of invite top eight or Ten or whatever it was, but they also invited a few European amateurs, which was good. But I remember playing Hamburg. We were talking about it last night. Actually, they were hanging from the rafters, actually watching it. I've always thought, let's have a tournament in Hamburg, mm. you know, because it was amazing that the crowds. I couldn't believe it. it. Was actually the famous night when Jimmy played the Massey shot. I think it's on YouTube. That was mm. that was actually. I think it was in Hamburg. And you can sort of hear the crowd. It was, it was awesome over there. I did the World Mixed Doubles Championship in Hamburg at Green Snooker Club. And again, it was absolutely packed. And they've got a tradition out there. They Rather than clap to show their appreciation, they stamp their feet. And we got the locked-off camera on the trophy at the end of the match. And they were all stamping their feet. And the, 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 the camera was going all over the place because, you know, obviously the, 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 the stuff it was mounted on was going moving as well. It was a great atmosphere, really good. And I, I agree with Alan. I think it would be a... A tremendous place to go to. Actually, a quick story about the Regal Masters that you're talking about. 
I've got a funny memory from it actually. I, th- I lost in the final twice. I lost to Ken and I lost to Bondi. And um, Nigel beat me, I think it was 9 8 or 10 9, he beat me the uh, decider. And I got drug tested, as is normally, mm. you know, both finals, uh, both finalists. And uh, a couple of my mates came along, so it was about 15 miles from where I lived. So I got a drug test, had a couple of beers because I'd lost. And um, you're, you're supposed to remain on site to do the drug test. Actually, my, a couple of my mates, I couldn't go to the loo. So, you know, it was like I had to just wait around, waiting, having a couple of beers. And they said, and I lost my kind of thought, probably through the beer. And it, they said, oh, come on, we'll just go back home. So I went home and I got a phone call about two in the morning. They said, listen, you've got a drug test to do. You can't leave the premises, otherwise you might be in trouble. The guy actually drove out to my house, but back then there was no, like, Google Earth or what, you know, there was no... <laughs> so he took about an hour and a half to find my house. It was about four o'clock in the morning, and we were still having a few beers, me and my mates. So I did the drug test in my own house. It was like, it was weird, you know, about four, four o'clock in the morning. But they were they were good tournaments, yeah. Well, I would just finally on this, Goffs, we have to mention. Yeah, I was going to say. The Irish Masters, I mean, that was an incredible uh, venue for snooker, wasn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I played Ken there, which was, he got a huge reception. I played Alex Higgins there, the, the time when he had the bad leg, and um, I lost to him, and I thought, this is, this is no good, I've got beat by a fellow on one leg here. Yeah? I know he had everyone on his side, but then he went on and won it, so I didn't feel quite as bad about that. That was a great event. I lost in the final of that to Davis once. Davis won it, I think, a lot, didn't he? Eight times or something. Yeah, he beat me twice in the final. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was a, that was a terrific tournament, mm. actually. And, you know, I think that was quite a special invitation event, you know, as was, as is the Masters, still is. Because you felt like you were going over there to something that was quite important. I think the final point I would say on that, it didn't seem to matter that it wasn't a ranking event, you know, it yeah. didn't seem to matter. It meant a lot to be involved in it. Well, I'm going to throw you, Phil, a hot potato, okay? Um, because we're at the Tour Championship, this is a ra- eight-man event, ranking event, you know, Players' Championship, 16-man ranked event. Should the Masters now be a ranking event? I don't think so. And I'll tell you why, because it's based on two-year rankings. So in that two-year rankings, there's the World Championship, where 16 players are seeded into the last 32. So everybody doesn't start on a level playing field. Whereas for this one, all of the tournaments that count for this, for the World Grand Prix, and indeed for the Players' Championship, start in the 1-2-8. So everybody's on a level playing field. So you could actually say that the the Masters is slightly different because it's a two-year list. I mean, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to make it a world-ranking event, and certainly if they did, you wouldn't hear any great protests from me, but I think that's one of the reasons why it isn't. But yeah, but that doesn't matter anymore, does it? Because if they, if you said it was going to be a ranking event the year after next, then everyone's got the same chance of being in the, the 16 for the year before, haven't they? Strictly speaking, they actually don't, because a first-year pro has got, what, six or seven months to get in it? Yeah, good yes. point, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so we're right. saying no then, are we? <laughs> I did say it was a hot potato. Yeah. 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 Right. I, I think the mystique of the event would be a little tarnished as well. I mean, let's face it. It doesn't need to be a ranking event. No, it doesn't need to be a ranking event. That's that's the final word. OK, we move on to O, which is for 147. Uh, this season we had the 147th 147, Dave Gilbert, rather prosaic surroundings of um, the Rico in Coventry, no audience or any, any, any of that, but he made it, he's on the list again. Um, it's still a special break, I mean we do have a lot of them, but we have a lot of snooker, and we also have a lot of players down the list who are now capable of making these big breaks. Well, two things come to mind about 147s, which are sort of an original thought really. One is that increasingly we're seeing players make a 147 and lose the match in question. It's remarkable how often that happens. The other one I will say is, people always ask me, what's your favourite 147? And it used to be the obvious ones. 
but now I'd plumb for one that is very left field. But I'm doing this because it gave the person who made it immense pleasure, more than any other 147 I've ever seen. And he won very little for it. Fergal O'Brien in the Championship League. When he made that 147, he was absolutely over the moon. There was no one there watching. It didn't mean <laughs> hardly anything to anyone apart yeah. from Fergal. Yeah, and he was yeah. Yeah. absolutely delighted. And I was really pleased for him. You, you did say left field. Um, we go back to John Spencer, of course. He made one, and there was this thing about it, what the pockets weren't templated, but also the cameraman were at McDonald's. That was in Um, Slough, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, and Joe Johnson was there, he told me he was watching, he said that after, this was a different time, clearly, because he said after Spencer potted the last pink, he did a sort of mock faint, he'd lay on the floor, (laughs) got up and potted the black. Um, But then, of course, Davis, it would have to be Steve, wouldn't it, to make the first Mm. one at the the Lada Classic? I have to say, I actually went to that event in Slough with my dad. Um, I don't think that day, we were there one of the days, and I think the pockets were bigger. I could even you could you could even tell that from watching it. You know, just on the sidelines. I was only a kid, but you could see the pocket they were going in off the jaw. People were saying it. Now, nothing to take away from John Spencer, who was th- you know three times champion. They were a great player, but so I think that's fair enough. They might have been buckets actually for that one. Um, you know, it's not a surprise that Davis made the first one, is it? Really, you know, he he sort of changed so much <coughs> in the game. But I think it's. I, I never made one. I don't. Did you? Have you made one? No, I never made one. I've never had one against me either. I nearly had oh, one yeah. at the Masters one year, when the prize was um, a big. It was like an XJS Jag or something. It was a big green thing with like cream leather interior, and it was. It looked like massive because it was in the foyer of the conference centre, and I was playing David Rowe. I remember. And I should have got one. I think I screwed the 14th black in uh, on and off Kush for the red. And if I go past the red or hit the red um, full ball, I'm perfect. And I hit it half ball and left it horrible. But I, and it would have been nice to make one at the Masters. But so that would have been, uh, you know. To be honest, I don't. I mean, as much as Fergal O'Brien's is, was a great break, I'm sure. I can't see how that's the best one. I think he just <laughs> feels just gone a bit. Uh, no, know, no, 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 rogue. No, 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 not not the best one, but the one that gave me the warmest feeling, certainly. And I know it did for Fergal as well. It was. There's never been a bad one. That's no, for sure. No, one thing no. I can say about that: there's never been a bad break. I mean, I, look, I'm going to keep it simple and say that Ronnie's one, uh, one four seven in five minutes twenty. I can't. Every time I watch it, I still can't believe how quick it was because he didn't seem to be rushing. That's the strangest part about it. I think the best black that's ever been potted was maybe Selby. He potted mm. in left middle, didn't he? For the hundredth. Yeah. yeah. For, yeah. I mean, I mean that to, yeah. that was an awesome shot. To, to, you know, usually it's like high black and you put it, but that, that was, how did he land low? I don't remember. But I... The last part about it would say is that exclusive club of players that have got to the, the black and mist, isn't there, as well, which is quite, uh, I think, mm. you know, obviously Ken is on there. He's probably the, the highest profile one. Mm. Chai has done it a couple of times. Selby as well did it in Selby China. Did. No one ever sort of mentions that, but that was on telly. He missed yeah. the last black, um, but he sort of redeemed himself. Obviously, what, what's happened is they've become more regular, so you don't get now the big money prizes. I know they have the rolling... Prize, but it's very rare now that that rolls over to a really massive prize. Yeah. I think people don't understand how it all worked in the in the old days. One four sevens were very very rare, so a sponsor, say Embassy or whoever, could have a, a bet with a bookmaker that a one four seven would be made at very very large odds. So if you're offering, say, I don't know, one hundred forty seven thousand pounds for a one four seven, you're actually only putting up, I don't know, twenty thousand because you get seven eight to one. Before that, it was even bigger odds. Now. You go to a tournament and maybe it's six to four, even money, depending on the, the scale of the event. So they can't really afford to put those big prizes up now. It's not a matter of them being stingy or miserly or anything like that. It's just the way of the world. I actually still say the biggest one single frame achievement in the history of the game is Jamie Burnett's 148. Mm. Because I've, in practice matches all time, I have, 
I've had a free ball, I think, once and <coughs> maybe twice ever. And that t- to do it, it's just mind blowing, I think, you know. Mm. And that was terrible the way he was treated because yes. they wanted to, they gave him was nothing. No, there was no high, pre TV, no high break prize in that, <coughs> in that stage. But, but they, so everyone thought, well, there should be a special prize. Um, and I think in the end, he didn't qualify for York, but they, they, they invited him down. Standard fare uh, return, but and basically it was worked out. He would have to. He would be there about ten minutes. But we'd have to go back again. But what, <laughs> one, what, part, part of the prize he got, which was, well, judge yourself. This is ridiculous. He was given two tickets to a match of his choice. Yeah, <laughs> like, he's never watched a match in his life. You know. No, it's a oh. shame. But anyway, he's there and, and it'd be interested. I mean, yeah. that's. A, I suppose that's the next milestone. If someone can make a break above one four seven. On TV, that would be that would be a moment, wouldn't it? But, well, we've yeah. had a sixteen-year clearance at the Crucible, yeah. obviously Steve James. But literally, I see two or three instances a season where players got a mm. chance of that, mm. because obviously, without telling people what they probably already know, you've got to make a foul at the start of the frame, and all fifteen reds can't be hit. Well, that's quite unusual in itself, isn't it? Mm. They, you know, there'd have to be an unusual set of circumstances. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I think I had one or two opportunities in my career just just on the practice table, like you say, it's very rare. Yeah. You went for a one four seven <clears throat> against uh, Willie Thorne in the English Professional Championship yeah. at eighty, and took a liberty and went to try to swerve a, to, um, a red or, to get to get on the black for the eleventh. And you, I thought I'd won the frame, and he ended up winning the frame. Got a free ball, won the frame. But needless to say, I got the last laugh, won the match. <laughs> no one asked that question. <laughs> no, I'm still saying it, it. It's always brought up that though, isn't it? When anyone yeah. gets to eighty, well, there was a one instance. Yeah, no, there was. Yeah, anyway. 80, I was a bit sick. Anyway, let's move on to P, which is for pot black. Um, BBC television programme, 50 years old this year, 1969 it started. Uh, BBC Two had come in and it was the first colour TV service. The controller of BBC Two was David Attenborough, um, who went on to become quite famous for other things. And he commissioned this programme to showcase the colour service. And obviously snooker with its colours was perfect. And the rest literally is history, isn't it? Because that was the first exposure most people had to, to snooker, certainly in colour. And from there, we, you know, we've moved on to this multi-million pound circuit. Yeah, it was, I mean the thing about it was it, it was all recorded over the couple of days, and it was meant to be a secret, wasn't it? Who won it? But it was brilliant. I mean, that, you, I think would it be a Thursday evening? It was on something like that around about nine o'clock, and it was the only snooker on, and you, you would always watch that. Just one frame of snooker, and it, and um, you know, I mean, as the, what, the frame I remember was when Eddie Charlton made the break of 110. Um, a couple of series in, I think I don't know exactly the year, but. Yeah, you know, and word had got around that it happened, and you know, wasn't no one was going to miss that episode. You know, tremendous. I strangely remember watching it, but I I don't think I'd ever played in a full size table. I'm guessing it would have been around seventy nine, eighty seventy eight, seventy nine. I can't remember who was playing. What I do remember about it was Alan Weeks was the presenter. Mm. Was that right, Alan? Yeah. And the little trophy, and it's obviously I was only a kid at the time, and you think how. How does every frame last only 25 minutes or whatever? <laughs> Obviously, they edit it down, but it, I watched it, and I wasn't really into snooker. I was too young, but it sort of got, got me hooked, yeah. It so, shows, actually, how the game has changed and evolved, because nowadays, if you had a one-frame programme lasting a half an hour, you'd have a big fill, wouldn't you, really? More is, that than you? Like, is that you? Yeah, more than likely. Yeah. <laughs> but back then, quite a lot of the frames had to be edited down yeah. to fill, because... You know, if there was a lengthy safety exchange, and who could blame these guys because that was the best exposure they were going to get all year, and that was going to give them exhibition work. Because if people saw them on the telly playing well, oh, we'll we'll book that guy. And one player it made his career was Graham Miles, yeah. 
who won it not once but twice and obviously got to the final of the 74 World Championship as well well that's, imp- it was, that's the thing it was important for, for the game but also for the players because like you say it was, a, it was a chance for them to sort of showcase themselves oh I've been on the BBC so now all of a sudden they are booked for more exhibitions you know as seen on TV and in those days there was the World Championship and, and basically that was it so you couldn't make a living from tournament play you had to make it through the holiday camps and, and the exhibition circuit the other thing is how the world has changed Alex Higgins was blackballed for a few series, he wasn't allowed to play in it. Now, can you imagine the TV companies now saying, "Oh, yeah, that's no problem. If you don't want to have Alex in, you know, don't don't worry, we'll go ahead anyway." They would insist on him being in because he was he was the writer, he was yeah. the big writer. And of course, it was Sidney Lee in the early days was the referee, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Uh, which you know that's, that tells you how far it all goes back, really. And uh... but also it established the etiquette, didn't it? You know, the players in the waistcoats, the whole sort of feel of snook, tournament snooker, which we sit, still see today, was established then. Yeah, terrific. I, I liked it, and uh, you know, obviously they had junior pop black after that for a while. But I think the you original, played in that, didn't you? Yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, the first year it ever took place, I was in that. Didn't win it. Uh, John Parrott. Um, Lost in the final to Dean Reynolds. That was the very first year of it. Yeah, that, that was that was very nerve wracking. You know, I think we were sixteen year olds and hadn't played on the TV. Just in the, just terrified really just to be there. But it's quite very exciting. <laughs> I remember they had Pot Black. Uh, they reintroduced it. Mm. Must have been around ninety two, and it was a Blackpool. Anyway, cut long story. Um, it was. I think it was scheduled for June mid mid June, and that we had a long break in the season. That we didn't play until about August September. So I was not playing. I was supposed to play in Pot Black in Blackpool. Completely forgot about it. A guy who looked after me at the time, I went in the club this day and he said, do you know where we're supposed to be right now? I said, no. He said, Blackpool, Pot Black's on. I'm like, oh, no. So I get a disciplinary letter in from the governing body. It goes down to Bristol for the disciplinary hearing. And Barry Hearn was on the board. He wasn't chairman at the time. I can't remember who. I think John Spencer was chairman. And so I thought it was all that official thing. And I've sat down. I was only about 21 at the time. They said, right, Alan, what's your explanation for not... And I said, well, the car broke down and mm. we had a blowout in the motor and Barry Hearn just piped in the first one. He said, oh, come on, Al, you've got to come up with better than that, son. <laughs> and that... Yeah, just realise. You know, realize so that, 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 that's yeah. Barry Hearn, isn't it? I never yeah. realised Alan was such a rebel. Like, no, not rebel. done a drug test, yeah. not yeah. turning up for tournaments. <laughs> I don't remember any of this. <laughs> out the window. Yeah, but he's, he's a rebel... With a pause, okay. not with that one. Uh, <laughs> a, a niche joke. Um, they also they had some towards the end, like you say, it got revived, and then they had some. It was like time frame they called it. It oh, was like right, yeah. against the clock, which didn't. No one really understood how it worked. No. Mainly the players. They didn't have it. I won it, and they, <laughs> so they never had it again. Yeah, they, they said no more of this nonsense. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I won that, but. Uh, it, it didn't seem to catch on. They had an idea. It was a bit like chess, where they would. Yeah. It was not like the shootout. Now, what it was is you would play your shot and you would stop the clock. <laughs> so, but, I mean, I suppose it, there is possible you could do something with that now with the you know, slow players because um, someone that took too long on the shot ran out of time. Basically, it was. It didn't work out. And, but I still, I still, um, I've got my name down as a winner of Pop Black, and I did receive <laughs> the trophy, albeit it said time frame next to it. I forgot about that. They also had a one-frame shootout in Stoke, which was rather ridiculous, because in the final, Darren Morgan beat Mark Hallett 2-1. Right, yeah. Now, work that one out. I actually, that, that, I remember that. I was at Trentham Gardens. I, I drew Stephen Hendry in the first round and, and somehow managed to beat him. But uh, I, that's what I remember. But I, I th- yeah, I remember the fight. I, I think I got to the semis or quarters or something. But yeah. But this is why, in the end, Pop Black got stopped, because obviously the game had moved on and people would rather, in the end, not watch half an hour 
they want to watch the World Championship over 17 days and all, the, and all the other tournaments. But it played a very, very important part in the game's development. Let's move on to Q, which, and this is a bit of a cheat, but bear with me, Q is for Q, as in snooker Q. Um, obviously, you know, the most important part of a player's armoury, and, and we've seen a lot of players over the years stick with their one trusty queue. A lot of players, on the other hand, changing their queue, messing around with the queue, getting a new queue, breaking a queue. Um, we sort of take it for granted, don't we? We see them walking in with it, but it's a very important bit of kit. Well, we're doing this podcast here in Clandidno, and of course this was the hometown of Fred Davis for many years. And Fred was the archetypal example of someone who kept the same queue throughout his career. He turned professional at the age of 16, he stopped playing in his very late 70s, and the queue he started with was the queue he finished with, which was remarkable, really, by modern standards. We've had a few instances over the years where people have forgotten their queues. Cliff Thorburn, do you remember that time at the Grand Prix? And I think he used um, John Spencer's queue. At the time, Cliff was a top player, and he lost 5-0 to Steve Newbury. He couldn't knock a ball in. So back then, it was thought, if you lost your queue or it was damaged, that was you. Finished. Well, when Stephen had his queue stolen, it was at, at Hexagon, wasn't it? Um, at, for, at, right in, at the point where he was the best player in the world, uh, his queue went missing. Um, I think he <coughs> left the practice room, which was in the hotel, and went to get a drink, come back, it had gone. I mean, he reckons that he would have lost 5-0 because the, the queue they brought down was meant to be a replica, but Stephen was very sort of particular. He, didn't use, he had that same queue for many, many years, didn't he? And um, it turned up just in time, and, but he reckons that he was doing the line-up with this other queue. He couldn't make 16 with it, so it's a massive thing. I remember that day, actually. I went in the hotel. It was called the Renaissance, upstairs from the Hexagon at the time. And there was security guys, I'd maybe done practice or something, and they stopped me on the way in and, like, not searched me, but, like, who are you, why are you here, all that. It was a big... Uh, I'm not surprised after all the other things. I know, I've still got it in my mind. I mean, uh, <laughs> <clears throat> um, but, yeah, cues are um, massively important. There was one, I had one funny uh, thing that I... Um, this is another rogue one for me, I'm, you know, a, a, a rebel. Um, I, I lost in Preston one night in the, the car park outside the hotel through the bus station. It was dark, it was like 10 o'clock at night. Packing up the car, put my stuff in the car, my case or whatever. And you go to put your snooker queue in the, you know, through the back of the, you know, the, the boot of the car. And I just lost my mind and I obviously didn't put it in. So I'm driving home, I'm got, I've got to about Carlisle, which is about 80 miles north of Preston. And you look in the mirror to see the top of your queue in the back of the car. And I've gone, oh, oh, no queue. I'm like, oh, no, 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 panicked. I've had to drive back. And it was lucky it wasn't raining, because if it's raining, the, the, you know, the, your tip's going to be damaged, the queue's going to be probably damaged. So I drive back to the car park, it's pitch black, and my queue's still lying on the floor of the car park. Uh, that old queue you used to use, <laughs> you used to beat me with every time. You should have just left it there. Because <laughs> it was well, all taped up I, at the I end. I found it in someone's garden. They were growing pea pods. So <laughs> <laughs> but but there's also about Henry's queue that it was basically no good. But obviously for him it, it was. Great queue, but no. People always said you would never pick it out of the rack if you well, wanted to pick one. I don't think it was an expensive queue, but sometimes you can pick up a nice bit of wood you know as a queue I, mean, I, I used the same queue for years as well um, my queue wasn't all that but um, I, you know now it seems that um, you know the, the way that they're made such high quality you know you can probably get used to a new one relatively quickly I actually think now with queues I've had the, my, the queue that I use now for just over three years I think um, a, 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 a queue from Thailand I actually think now the, with a modern player a good thing is to change your queue maybe every four or five years right. because players now the modern guy hits the ball that firm it actually does sort of not deteriorate but it changes 
you know, when you pick up a brand new cue these days, it's like an iron barn, you, you know, going through, you go through the white light, it's unbelievable. Mm. As time goes past, and I'm now, what, three, four years now with my own cue, you sometimes feel this isn't hitting it as solid as, as it did when I first got it. So I think, and players can adapt now because cues are all mm. very uniform, but, you know, p- p- players do generally like what they've got. But. Mm. From a journalistic perspective, I think the best cue story was the one in early 2006 when Graham Dot had been beaten in the Welsh Open and he was driving home and just on the spur of the moment on a service station decided to break his queue. So he's there trying to break the queue and he just can't do it. The bloody thing won't break. No, well, he actually hurt his leg. He put, yeah. it, he put it diagonally against the wall and, gone to, and he couldn't break it and he hurt his leg. He said there was a lorry driver looking at him from the cab of his lorry yeah. looking at him and said, what are you trying to do? And he, there he is, he's getting more and more mad trying to break the queue and he wouldn't. But we, on the sort of, sort of less funny side of that, uh, Alain Robidoux, of course, um, his queue got broken, not by him. Um, and that complete, well, it destroyed his career, basically. Well, he turned up at the World Championship the year after the queue was broken, I think is the world number seven, because, of course, then, your ranking only changed once a year. Had it been under this system now, he would have been so far down the rankings, he would have had to qualify. You're right, David, it absolutely decimated his career. The thing as well with, with Elaine's queue, as most of the Canadians used, they were queues called Dufferin, that was the name of it, and they had these fibre ferals, the dark ferals that Cliff used, and I think Bill and whoever else. Uh, the Canadian lad, so it was really he, like for Elaine to go to maybe a one piece ash or a two piece maple, whatever. I think would have been really difficult with the brass ferrule and all of it. And they had that joint in the middle of Dufferin cues. So I, uh, that was apparently the guy just like he, he had a logo on it or something. Yeah, he'd Elaine had put a logo on because mm. he was being sponsored. And the, the, the person who made the cue, who was quite elderly, I think, and a bit, a bit of a traditionalist, took an exception to this sort of sponsorship and just smashed it up, which was, you know, just mm. awful, really. Mm. Yeah, that's right, and he, he wasn't the same player for, mm. probably ever again, but he did eventually get used to a different cue, but uh, it, it affected him um, worse for the reasons Alan explained, I think, than would anyone else in the game. Mm. I heard one top player say, I won't say who it was, but he said that um, there, was a, there was a case for players taking more than one cue into the arena. Um, now, of course, Luca Brassell did that at the Masters. It didn't work for him last year. Is there anything in that? I, I don't think so. Yes. No, I mean, I remember one guy, Robbie Grace, who, who <laughs> when I first turned pro, he had two ash cues, one two one piece ash cues, and he used to stand just before going out and with one in each hand and think that one, that one, that nah, I'll go with that one, and he would, you know, but that's that that would just wouldn't happen nowadays. I think. No matter how uniform a cue maker gets, that you know a piece of wood I see as a you know snooker geek as as a kind of living, breathing thing, so you don't get two the same. So who could it, I'm trying to think. You're not going to say who it was, but whoever it is, he's, he's clearly a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right not to name him. That's not the right thing to do. No, I'm okay. not. I'm not. I'm not going to well, say. Best it. not. Well, not after you call him a lunatic. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, we talked about Hendry. I mean, he was never really the same after his cue got broke. He got broke by baggage handlers at Heathrow, sort of ignominious end. Yeah, he won tournaments with the new cue, uh, but the old one was part of the, the armoury, wasn't it? It was mm. part of the arm. Yeah. Part of his body had felt like, you know, symbiosis, whatever they call it. But, yeah, he wasn't the same player, although he, he, he did win events. But, yeah, I mean, back then, the, the, the thought process was, if your kid was damaged, it could basically be terminal for your career. That was what the general assumption was. There was sort of So one last thing on that I was going to say is that when I was sort of doing OK at the game, they, they came to one of the Q manufacturers and said, we're going to try and pioneer a graphite queue, and if you can put your name to it. I thought, this is, could be good, couldn't it? So they, they gave me the prototype, and honestly, it was unusable. 
You couldn't break off with it. And you'd break off, you'd hit the pink full ball, or you'd go the other way and you'd miss the red. It was just impossible to use a graphite cue it, in any way. It just did not play anything like a, you know, an Asher or Maple cue. So that quickly disappeared. Just, just one final point, <coughs> Alan. Obviously, you're very much still playing, and you'll be aware of this. Travelling abroad now, you can't take your cue on with you. You can't carry the cue no. onto the plane. So there's that anxiety when you get to the other end, particularly in China, and maybe you've had an internal flight. Is it going to turn up? Well, that... that Fortunately, touch wood, I've not had a, a, a queue not turn up so far, but um, my last time I was out in China, just uh, before Christmas, I uh, got out there, went on the practice table, and my ferrule started pinging mm. when I was hitting the ball. The reason, I think, is when it's in the hold for 10 hours, it's minus whatever under there, it's really cold. Obviously, wood shrinks over that period of time, so the, the ferrule now is actually loose, and that, so it's not a... Not a good thing, but that maybe in the snooker geek, I actually have made a a kind of fibre cover for my cue to right. put in my case. It's like an ins- it's like insulation mm. to put your cue in your cue case and then in your uh, sport tube that hopefully will stop the you know the, the wood from shrinking and, and causing a problem. But what if, if your cue ends up getting you lost in the baggage? That doesn't matter, does it? Really, all about no, that does no, no help to you. No, but if it does turn up, <laughs> it, might not, it might not pick. But um, I was one other quick thing on mm. that. Um, the cues, sorry, <clears throat> uh, a player who I won't mention, he left his cue overnight uh, back home on the table on the bed of his table and the heaters were on overnight and he, he came in the next day and his cue was like a boomerang <laughs> he spent two days you know bending it back into shape and he got it thankfully back into shape so you've got to be careful and me again being the geek um, I actually when I put my cue in my, cake, my cue case I turn it 90 degrees every day I mean that'll sound really like wow. far out but and folds his head in his hands. The reason is so that I I'm, I just think if you turn it ninety degrees every day, then it'll stay straight over time. Does that not make sense? That lad knew it was a boomerang because <coughs> he threw it away and he came back to him. <laughs> yeah. And on that joke, we're going to end. Thank you very much. We're making progress by about twenty twenty three. We should have this alphabet finished. Thank you. Sports Social Podcast Network.